As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. there welcome and thank you for tuning in to this week's episode the first of the season no less of the athletic football tactics podcast so that's us now a new season a new title a rebrand if you will now why well we spent a few weeks during the off season doing some analysis and the data showed that marking zonally makes absolutely no difference to the success nor the popularity of a podcast and we were tired of marginalizing those who prefer to man mark so what's new other than our fancy name very little the normal weekly show which we've enjoyed making for the best part of two seasons now will continue with notebook style content trips across the continent uh, analysis of players teams managers all of the good zonal marking stuff from the last few years but also there will be more of us that means regular extra episodes to keep you guys going as the days grow shorter and as the 21-22 season progresses some guest appearances we hope from those who make the athletics coverage what it is as well as interviews with people within the game whose brains we'd like to pick on this pod. Tactics, obviously, we'll be doing plenty of that, plenty of analytical subject matter as well, and a bit of historical content too. We want to be a broad church discussing everything that interests us, and us is myself, Ali Maxwell, Michael Cox, and Tom Warville, of course, of The Athletic. Welcome to both of you. Michael, it's so refreshing to me that in an industry full of ego that you have allowed us to untether the title of this podcast from your your own impressive but swollen brand. Uh, have you had a nice few weeks off? Yeah, it's been very pleasant. Thank you. And yeah, quite like the rebrands. I've never seen a zone listen to a podcast. I think it's the, <laughs> the uh, analysis we came to, yeah. Uh, Tom, you ran the numbers on this. You worked out we could be even more ambitious with our coverage. Uh, you refreshed and ready to go? Yes, absolutely. Uh, feeling very good for a couple of weeks off after the Euros. And yeah, I can't wait for, for football to come back. Okay, well, let's get cracking. Uh, we've got plenty to do over the next few weeks. Next week's podcast will be a Premier League season preview. We will be looking to do that a little differently, perhaps to some of the season previews that you will listen to. We hope that we will succeed in making 
making that as interesting as, uh, well, as always, we want to find that balance between detail and conciseness, and that is the target next week. But this week, we're going to ease you guys back in. I want to have a little chat with you about some of the articles that you've written recently on the Athletic site. Uh, Michael, firstly with you, because your few weeks off has been spent writing sort of opinion pieces, I guess, the the sort of stuff that maybe you don't have time to do or you can't do or or wouldn't be your focus during the the regular season. Have you enjoyed changing tact a little bit, changing subject matter? Yeah, it's been fun. Uh, I've got an article out today that I really enjoyed writing about the kind of geographic shift of uh, Premier League sides since the formation of the league. And over the last, I think, 12 years, the geographic midpoint of the 20 Premier League clubs has has shifted south about 50 miles, which I think is quite interesting. I think it owes to economic factors and I think is maybe a a little bit more significant than than you might think at first glance. And uh, yeah, there's been some other fun pieces. An article I wrote, which I've been meaning to do for a while, about just the sheer competition to be a professional footballer and how it's so much more intense to reach the top than in really any other sport, because football is one of the very few global sports. And uh, yeah, fun article about Leo Messi as well in his current situation, which is uh, pretty odd. I mean, the best player in the world is out of contract, has no club at the moment. And that is the article that we thought we would discuss to start today's podcast. Of course, you can read all of Tom and Michael's stuff on The Athletic, and you can sign up with a 33% discount on an annual subscription at theathletic.com forward slash Tactics. That is the new code, theathletic.com forward slash tactics. Uh, but yeah, Lionel Messi is who you wanted to write about. Uh, of course, there's been a lot surrounding Messi and Barcelona and, and as you say, technically out of contract. But you're not that interested really, Michael, in transfer rumour, discussions about will he, won't he sign a new contract. You wanted to look at this uh, more generally about the current Lionel Messi, whether or not he is the best player in the world. The, the conclusion, well... Yeah, he still is. Yeah, I mean, I almost didn't start the article thinking I'm going to write about how he's the best player in the world. The, the article really was meant to be more along the lines of, look, this is the best player in the world who's playing in a relatively average side. And uh, we haven't really seen that before. I mean, we haven't seen Messi playing in, in a, a club side this week ever. I mean, he pretty much came into a Barcelona side that was... European Cup winners or about to win the European Cup in 2006 and since then they've more or less been in the top three the top four sides in Europe often the best side in Europe and now I I don't think they're anywhere close to that level and I thought to see him perform as he did last season we saw a slightly different side to his game we saw him just dominate in a side that didn't have that many other options. He, he couldn't rely on Xavi and Iniesta. He couldn't rely on Suarez ahead of him. You know, those those legendary players have all gone now and there's not that much left. And I think really his level of performance last season, although he's not at his peak, I'd say he was a better player seven years ago, 10 years ago than he is now. I think in a way his performance was actually one of the most impressive of, of his career. Uh, to the extent that you kind of mentioned that this is is almost flirting with that sort of age-old debate that that transcends sport, and each sport has its own one. So, uh, in the piece you mentioned, you know, how would Lewis Hamilton do in a mid-level Formula One car? Uh, how would Mark Cavendish do on a, a less competitive, less dominant team? This is, in a way, football's most realistic answer to the question: What happens if you put Lionel Messi in a mid-table side? Yeah, exactly. And I think sometimes that argument can stray into. You know, people saying that those sportsmen have to do that to prove themselves. <laughs> I mean, I don't buy that. I mean, they're, it's just how it works. If you're the best Formula One driver, the best team wants to. And the same goes for being the best sprinter in cycling. But it's still 
acceptable to wonder. And uh, yeah, I mean, you look at the, the the odds for the Champions League of the season about to start. The Barcelona are only seventh favourites, and that's on the assumption that Messi's going to be there. You take away Messi, I think it's probably I think it's Real, Atleti, and maybe Juventus would probably go ahead of him in the betting. So Messi's really at the 10th best side in Europe at the moment. And that is pretty rare. I mean, I, I didn't look through the stats on this, but last time a Ballon d'Or winner was at the 10th best club in Europe, I would think that would be going quite a way back, especially when you're talking about such a superstar attacking player. So, yeah, I think it's been a really interesting situation. And uh, yeah, like I say, I was as impressed with Messi as I have been for many years. Uh, and just let, just fill me in on what it is to watch Lionel Messi these days, because for someone like me who, who was so obsessed with that Barcelona side from, what, 10 years ago now, uh, with Messi at the forefront, the best player in the world already at that stage and doing everything. You know, my image of, of that side is Messi ghosting past players for fun, certainly not dribbling for the sake of it, but but only when it was the right thing to do, bouncing passes off Xavi and Iniesta, scoring more goals pretty much than anyone we've ever seen before. I mean, I know that last season in La Liga, he scored the most goals in the league. He created the most chances in the league. He made the most successful dribbles in the league. But what's different watching Messi at 34 compared to at 24? I think the main thing is his his approach without the ball. I mean, he doesn't have the legs to press as he used to. You know, 10 years ago under Guardiola, people were saying, look, if Messi can press like that, there's no excuse for any player in world football. Um, but he just knows he can't do that anymore. He has to conserve his energy. And I think, you know, looking back, obviously letting Luis Suarez go was turned out pretty disastrously for Barcelona. But there was some logic in it in the sense that I don't think they could play with Suarez and Messi up front, both not pressing. But I think Messi individually, when you look at his his numbers with the ball, they are not quite as good as ever, but still pretty much, well, still the best in Europe. I think you can very much afford to have a, a bit of a passenger without the ball mm. um, when you consider what he can do with it. Tom, what do some of the more interesting underlying numbers tell us about Messi, not just in comparison to other players in the world, but also in compared to previous versions of Lionel Messi? Yeah, it almost feels like comparing him to to others in La Liga, others in Europe, doesn't really make sense given the, the heights of uh, of his individual abilities in seasons past but looking at the the 2020-21 La Liga season we see that he got 27 non-penalty goals and nine assists in the league and if we look at those on a on a per 90 basis um, I think it was ninth for it's his ninth best season for non, non-penalty goals per 90 and his 15th best season for assists per 90 and that's out of 16 seasons in which he's played 900 minutes or more so really I mean assists aren't a great measure overall of creativity because there's a bit of an outcome bias there but we do see he had far less of a of an impact there on creating you know lots of chances for his teammates and probably speaks to the quality of of those surrounding him that can turn his passes into into shots into goals but what we did see from Messi which is kind of par for the course really is that he scored 27 goals non-penalty goals again from around 20 xg now comparing those two over a long period of time, I mean, there are other approaches to measuring finishing, but as a proxy in a single season, I think it tells you everything you need to know that didn't always get in, get in you know, fantastic positions, but he's lethal, is a better than average finisher. Uh, we can we can quite sensibly and, and, and confidently conclude, I'm pretty sure at this point. Has he ever not overperformed his expected goal numbers over the course of a season? I don't think so. I think every year he's he's been at least par or or over um 
And that's that's obviously rare. I think there are players like Ronaldo who've had stretches where they've really underperformed and maybe brought it back. And then other players like Neymar who actually have kind of consistently underperformed. But yeah, Messi is definitely the, the exception to that rule. I was interested in what Michael said with regards to the bookmakers' odds for the Champions League this season. And specifically the fact that Barcelona currently ranked by the bookies who have to quantitatively ranked teams in the same way that we try and do it in a certain way, Tom, uh, and as the seventh best team currently in Europe. But without Messi, they would drop to around the 10th best team. So they have worked out through their models uh, how much Messi is worth to, to Barcelona, presumably more than any other player in, in world football to their team. And it made me wonder if there had been any work done in the analytics world on, on how you can measure player value within a, a team? I guess, how much the best player in the world impacts a team's performance versus an average player? Now, clearly, we know it's a lot, but compared to other sports, for example, like basketball, where it's five on five, so one player's impact is just objectively greater within the team sphere because there are fewer players on the pitch to touch the ball, way fewer variables. Has there been any good work done on this front in football trying to be able to to give a, a player that sort of value? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. The ones that spring to mind really are these kind of top-down models which look at what's the team's goal difference or expected goal difference or whatever kind of underlying measure you want to use. Um, how does that change with or without a given player and given the teammates that they're playing with? So there are, we've seen kind of various approaches to this over the years, but there aren't really any kind of larger data sets out there in the public sphere that, that you can kind of dig into and show this. But I, I seem to recall a lot of them, you know, do rate Messi. There are some in the past. I remember a guy who works at, I think it's John Moore's, University in Liverpool, a guy called Ian McHale, and he had a model which does exactly this and it kind of was looking at the impact of Paul Pogba for Man United and kind of the increase in goals and you know potential points with adding him in there. So there are these kind of points added systems. Mm. You, must have, to, you must have to drill down so far in terms of the variables though, you know, just as you're talking off the top of my head, I'm thinking I would want it to be weighted by which other teammates were on the pitch at the same time, that the strength of the opposition, of course, and even game state to an extent, you know, are you coming on for, as they say in basketball, garbage time minutes at the end? As we know, those, those numbers can, can skew uh, data sets a little bit. So, I mean, the, the, the work that must go into making it, it you know, as, as tight as it can be must be incredible. Yeah, I think the modelling is is really complex, uh, of course, to you obviously get something that's reliable and taking into account those things. Red cards, of course, as well, are a big thing which you need to take into account. And also, I think there's probably something in terms of the impact of, a, of adding a player, which means you win 1-0 versus adding him and meaning you win 3 or 4-0. And I think those are two things you want, to, you want to differentiate between. But yeah, one other thing I kind of noted down in preparation for this was around this, I think this is one of the, the few bits of research I've really seen in this area is this whole notion of the O-ring theory, which is in a book called The Numbers Game, which is a, uh, effectively Moneyball, but for football. And it came out in the kind of mid-2010s, I think, by Chris Anderson and David Sally. And the whole O-ring part was, I think it was to do with one of the the rockets that went to the moon. And there was a, an issue with the O-rings, which are this kind of rubber lining in the rockets. And they were of like poor material they were like the the lowest quality they could have got something like that and it essentially meant the whole rocket 
exploded and all the dynamics didn't work and and you know it was bad and I think the same theory applies to football where you're only as good as your worst player and they looked at that and there was some correlation between you know the the left back who's terrible and there's a high correlation with with the points you can get based on the quality of your weakest player so I think that was quite an interesting approach and maybe it flips the question on its head alley where it's less of how much does Messi add more than how much does playing Oscar, Oscar Mingueza at the back over, you know, a peak years, Gerard Piquet impact things? You know, we've all played five-a-side at one point. I think we could all see that the impact of, of a bad player can be quite damaging for uh, for the team. So, uh, yeah, that's that's maybe one thing we should uh, we should look to, I guess, re, re-research mm. again and talk about in future. And I guess it kind of leads into the recruitment approach of, of kind of trying to raise the, the floor of your squad or your first 11 rather than potentially always going for the superstar that, that might raise the ceiling. Uh, let's get back to Messi because, Michael, it's been a brilliant summer for him over in South America. Argentina winning the Copa America, of course, his first international title since the 2008 Olympics. Uh, what I want to know is what percentage chunk of our judgment of a player's career should be international honours? achieved yeah i don't think it's necessarily about honors but i think performances are important i mean this is a first honor messi's well he won the olympics actually in, in 2008 um but it's the first senior honor if you like he's won but i think his performances have usually been pretty good i mean i remember him being pretty incredible in world cup 2010 just i can't believe he didn't score a goal he, i think he hit the post about three times i think in 2014 i mean he got the award as player of the tournament and people were saying well, that's a complete joke because James Rodriguez was surely better. Ian Robin was surely better. But actually, Messi was very good. He probably was the third best player in that tournament. So I think people have probably forgotten how good he was at times in that competition. Didn't score in the final. I think if he scores in the final, it's obviously a different story. But he's rarely been bad for Argentina. Argentina has often been bad for him. I mean, even the current side, you look at it on paper and it's you're struggling to find many world-class players in that. But I mean, he didn't just win the tournament. He won the award for the best player and he won the award for the top goal scorer um, and then lifted the, <laughs> lifted the trophy as captain. The only thing he didn't do was play particularly well in the final. Didn't score a sister or anything and probably could have made a better decision a couple of times. But overall, yeah, he was fantastic. And uh, it's just nice that is another box ticked and part of that debate is uh, is put to bed. Hey, let's try and do some, some clickbait, which uh, is not something that we approach very often. Tom Warville... Um, we're going to try and answer an age-old question. It's been about 10 years since we've been wondering who will the next best player in the world be uh, once Messi and Ronaldo retire. Uh, current favourites, I, I suspect, will be Mbappe, uh, Erling Haaland. Any other contenders for you? I think those two are the the most realistic in terms of, you know, they're able to replicate Messi's goal-scoring feats and we've seen them both able to do that at least over the last couple of seasons. But realistically, Messi is something of a, of a triple threat where he can you know, score. He's fantastic at uh, at scoring from all different types of situations. His dribbling ability with the ball is second to none. And I think his passing in terms of, you know, between the lines, progressively upfield, in tight spaces, or creatively to create chances is, you know, he's the best in all of those. And I just don't think that we will get a player who will be able to tick all those three boxes and be the very best at each. Maybe not in our lifetimes, maybe not ever. It's hard to believe, isn't it, Michael? I mean, the sport itself is not really designed for someone to be able to be the, the best goal scorer and the best creative passer uh, and chance creator on their team. Yeah, that is very rare. 
And I think that's the thing that probably won't quite be there with Mbappe and Haaland, even if they fulfil their potential. Both intelligent players. I think Mbappe in particular is is quite selfless at times as well, particularly when he's playing with Neymar. But yeah, we've been spoiled by Messi and by Ronaldo. At some point, there'll be a Ballon d'Or winner who's on the level of Nedved or Kaká, who have won the Ballon d'Or in previous years, who were at the time the best player in the world, but probably not all-time greats. Probably wouldn't make the top 20, 30, 40 players of all time. And people will be underwhelmed. But yeah, Messi's just a different breed. I, I don't think there will be a, a next Messi. I think there'll be lots of players who do try to replicate his impact. But yeah, excelling in so many different areas of the game is very, very rare. And Messi still technically unattached. We don't do news, but thankfully Dermot Corrigan does for The Athletic. I think that's doing him a disservice. Certainly not just news, but covering La Liga and Spanish football in general magnificently. And of course, the big story at the moment surrounds Messi and Barcelona. A new piece out today. If you want more information about Messi's situation at Barcelona, head to The Athletic, search for Dermot Corrigan uh, and check out the latest on Messi and Barcelona. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Part two of the pod, Don, we're focusing on a piece that you wrote recently. Now, you love a bit of transfer action, a bit of summer transfer window analysis. You like to work out maybe why teams are making certain signings, how much they've thought it through, how good a fit a player might be. Um, and for a recent piece, you, you looked at transfer window trends in general uh, across Europe, searching for, for themes as you do so well. It was perhaps a little early in the window to do it, but I mean, we've I've not really seen any analysis of how transfers have changed in Europe in the last couple of seasons so I think even if we we kind of caveat the uh, the conclusions from the the 2021 summer window I still think there's a lot of interesting stuff in there um, about how really things have evolved in Europe over the last five years. And one of the themes initially is that teams are buying fewer players. There's been less transfer market action so far. And of course, we've still got, depending on where you're based, about four weeks to go in, in the transfer window. So I'm sure we can expect that to ramp up. But at this point, what are you putting the lack of action down to? A mixture of, of the pandemic and its impact on football finance uh, and perhaps a major tournament summer as well? Yeah, I think it's all those things. I think we've seen some of the you know the cash flow issues for the likes of of Real and Barca, you know, and other teams just don't have the money to spend because they've not had fans in the ground because they've not had means of, of generating revenue themselves. If you don't have teams that do that, you therefore don't have buying teams. The buying teams aren't giving money to the smaller sides to reinvest. So I just think there's a, a kind of spiralling effect from there. And then we've seen in Liga, the, the kind of TV deal was kind of blown up and therefore that's had a massive impact on, on clubs' finances as well as the impact of of the pandemic so I think there's a bit of a, a double whammy there and the league having its own kind of credit crunch meaning that 
a lot of players are on a fire sale, really, and few clubs have the money to reinvest. And then I guess, yeah, the Euros, things are just a bit slower, seemingly. I mean, I, I kind of charted the number of, um, or the moves in the Premier League this year and the fee that they had and kind of looked at the, the distribution of them. And we've not really seen that many moves in the kind of 30 million plus category that we would typically see in a summer window. So whether this is going to be a domino effect of, you know, if Greedish goes, if Kane goes, if if Lukaku goes to Chelsea, the money starts flying around, the transfers start moving again. Mm. So I imagine we'll see a few more of those before the window closes. Quite a lot of the players that played in the Euro are still in Ibiza just two weekends before the start of the season. So it'd be interesting to to see not just in terms of the transfer market, but what impact that will have on Premier League football itself in the first few weeks, the first few game weeks of the season. And wh- one thing that's very clear, Tom, is the Premier League's financial advantage over the other leagues, even the other major leagues and just how stark is that in the numbers yeah it's it's huge and probably larger than I've really ever realized so what I, I looked at was the median transfer fee paid by um, paid by a club for a player uh, in the last five years and split it out by season um, and this is obviously just on on fees reported on transfer marks you know there's there's no real perfect source of truth on transfer data because of agents fees and signing on fees and, and the way that the deals are structured and all this but it's the best we have so you might as well just just work with it but what we saw was that the uh the medium spend in the premier league was roughly between nine and, and 14 million pounds in the last five seasons and on the continent it varies between two million and six million uh, and i think in la liga this season so far it's just under Two million, which showing the um, the issues that the the pandemic and all those previous effects I mentioned. So, so, are, are sorry having. if I'm being dumb here. Is that median spend per player signed, or like median yep. net spend? No, good good question. So yeah, just median uh, spend on on per player signed. Uh, with the thinking that I guess those would be relationship between the amount you can spend based on what you can sell. And so yeah, what what we've really seen is. Just the Premier League. I mean, the, the spending power of the Premier League has has not dropped off too much. It has in other leagues, um, but yeah, the the difference is you know nearly three times bigger the amount that that Premier League teams pay, and maybe that's some level of inflation because teams know Premier League clubs have more money, they can charge more money for the players, and therefore the true value um, is is heightened a bit. But yeah, I just found that really interesting that it is such a stark difference and it really is the kind of biggest, wealthiest league in the world. Mm. And Michael, not to get too negative about this, but this is not great news for competitive balance across, you know, we're not talking about across English football anymore, although that is still a huge issue, but even across elite level European football, this this is only going one way at the moment and again, at the risk of being negative for the worst in terms of well an entertaining a kind of an entertaining product at the very top of the game to an extent yeah you're right the Premier League sides are very wealthy I mean very wealthy when you look at the income of all top 20 you know the top 20 sides across Europe you often see you know West Ham are sneaking into you know 18th or 19th position ahead of Valencia or you know pretty grand clubs and I mean La Liga clubs and Serie A clubs they are very scared of the Premier League's television deal I mean that was a contributing factor of course for you know the Super League breakaway they feel like they're being left behind so yeah I I tend to agree with you obviously it's good to see the Premier League doing well but uh, we don't want it to become too dominant. Uh, Tom, what are some sort of transfer trends from some of those other top leagues across Europe? Uh, are, are there any sort of characteristics that are specific to, to one nation, one league? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I'll, I'll run through kind of France, Spain, Italy, which I think were arguably the most interesting. So France, I mean, the team's by a lot younger than the other leagues and there's seemingly a good a good culture in France of kind of like buying low on, on younger players, um, trying to develop them or give them minutes in a in a pretty decent league and then sell them on for more. Um, but they're actually this season spending more on average per player, which I think is just driven by the fact that there are so few players that have been bought. It's it's skewing that average. One of those will be uh, Akraf Hakimi, who's come from, from Inter to PSG for around £50 million. Pounds, um, and that's obviously going to kind of skew things a little bit. But what we've seen more of this year is more internal moves, you know, teams moving players through their own academies uh, and a lot of the kind of talent pipelines in France remain strong. And we see the fruits of that at, you know, at the Euros, at the French under-21 championships. Now, the performances weren't great, but on paper, the, the talent and the squads and the depth is uh, is big. So I think that that is still very much remaining very strong in France. In La Liga, it's a weird position right now because I feel it's the the weakest position the league's been at in years. Obviously, we've spoken a lot about Messi there, but obviously Real Madrid spent north of £200 million a couple of summers ago and don't really have much to show for it. So we've seen more free transfers this year in La Liga. There's been the punchier large ones like David Alaba, Sergio Aguero, Eric Garcia, and then some ones for, for smaller teams which just don't have the money for, for transfer fees and are looking to kind of pick players up from anywhere really whose contracts have come to an end. So one that I highlighted was um, Luis Abram, who is a Peruvian international. He's gone to Granada from Belasar's field in, in Argentina. Um, now that's a kind of probably a pretty decent league average-ish player for them um, for no fee. And I guess we're going to see more and more of those in La Liga this year. Um, and on average, La Liga sides buy the oldest players. So there's there's surely there a clear, a clear means of kind of finding a bit of value in La Liga and just not doing that, not buying the, the 28, 29 year olds or not bringing guys in from, from you know, in from Qatar or UAE where I feel uh, there's a usually a couple of moves a summer which are, are quite high salary um, and, and kind of low return investment in terms of looking at the long term strategy of the clubs. And then in Italy, I mean, the one thing, and I don't know if it's just because of how the data is reported or just because this is the nature of Italian clubs, but the volume of transfers is so much higher. If you say on average that a Premier League side is, is maybe bringing in eight to ten players, based, you know, even guys that are coming into the academy and things like that, Italian clubs will regularly get through 20 to 25 and they're loading them out left, right and centre. So there's a, a far kind of bigger farm system, I guess, um, and just the squad sizes for the B teams and the reserves and all this are just far, far bigger in, in Italy. And we see that with Juventus every year, maybe up to up to this point anyway, would always be able to make 10, 15 million pounds just selling off players that will never make the Juve first team, but will go to Sassuolo or Sampdoria or, or something like that. So yeah, there's there's been a bit of a, a shift and I think you can see that in the article we're speaking about I kind of try to visualize how the types of moves have changed and it is quite stark for some of the leagues this season but it's definitely one to to refresh uh, once the window closes and see if if those things have stuck or if, if it was just a, a you know small sample size wreaking havoc on actually what's happened Tom is there an argument that Premier League clubs are, are now actually bypassing La Liga in terms of being a little bit more wide-ranging with their scouting just looking at some of the clubs in the Incomings. I mean, the players Brighton have signed so far have been from Benfica, Salzburg, and Ajax. Arsenal so far have signed players from Benfica and Anderlecht. It feels like a few years ago they would be kind of cherry picking from top top half La Liga teams. Not usually the big two, but 
you know, Valencia's and Villarreal's. Has there been a bit of a shift away from that? Yeah, I'd, I'd need to check the numbers to be sure, but it definitely anecdotally feels like there is. And I think it's probably just because Premier League clubs won't be held to ransom anymore. Then maybe we'll get the players that the, the Liga clubs would go for. And we've probably seen a kind of drop off really in that good mid to top tier level of of Spanish clubs. Uh, Valencia haven't been that good of, you know, of late. Villarreal were great last season, but you look at some of the players they have on their squad and, you know, Etienne Capu, Francis Coquelin, there are, there are a few on there, uh, you know, Alberto Moreno, they don't maybe get all the minutes, but it kind of shows you the calibre of the players. Maybe the coaches are adding a lot more to the team than the actual individual quality. But, I mean, one that I was particularly surprised about, I mean, I was looking at if slash when Rafael Varane goes through to Man United, just how common say, you know, defenders to the Premier League from La Liga are. And looking at the the recent transfers here, like that isn't really a well-trodden route. And I think that it's it's interesting that there are certain leagues which just specific types of players, maybe it's bias and scouting or something like that, just aren't really signed. So in terms of centre-backs from La Liga recently, we've seen Diego Llorente to Leeds United from Real Sociedad, Mohamed Salasu from Valladolid to Southampton, Jesus Vallejo, who went on loan from Real Madrid to, to Wolves, which I didn't think paid off too well. Yeri Mina went to Everton, of course, and Barca. And I think that's about it in the last five seasons. So we've really, there's, you know, there's sort of some transfer flows which are really well trodden and others we just don't really see much of. So maybe that's because certain leagues are now seemingly better at producing types of players or there's just less value, you know, going shopping in La Liga than there, there was previously. Tom, one trend that, has been developing over the last few years but I believe continues this summer as per your piece is that clubs are buying younger the average age of a of a player transferred continues to drop and you know always looking for an edge always sharp I'm thinking now if that trend continues will the next edge be signing the sort of mid to late 20s players who might become undervalued but who at that point in their career could have plenty left to give yeah I always think they're kind of mixed strategies is best I've thought about this in the past and I just don't know how sustainable it would be if you're getting kind of the Adam Lalanas and Danny Welbeck's every single window because your squad feasibly at some point will all just blow up with injury and, and you'll get relegated so I think it's it's a nice it's a nice kind of tactic to use in the market we've seen it a little bit this year I mean We've spoken about Brighton extensively on this podcast, Ali, and we spoke about them last season. I remember you saying that their recruitment department refused to be pigeonholed, and I think that shows the the flexibility of their approach in the market. And and also another one which kind of caught my eye was is Aston Villa this summer. You know, they had to go out and get a backup fullback, someone who is good enough to play that position in the Premier League, was happy to play nine hundred to you know twelve hundred minutes, and won't cost the earth. And I think they've. You know, in the signing of Ashley Young, that's a pretty shrewd one. And there's the argument that do you put a younger player in there? But if they don't have them in the squad, then I think Young, for such a small outlay, makes a lot of sense. So, uh, yeah, I don't really think we're going to see... I don't really know a good kind of short way to, to reference this. Maybe it's oldie ball or something like that. But I don't think that that will be a um, an overall strategy of a Premier League side anytime soon. Uh, we'll see about that. Um, look, it's a brilliant piece, both of those, both uh, Michael's on, on Messi and, and Tom's on transfer window trends. So much more to come from both of you. Michael, as mentioned, released a fascinating piece today. Definitely different to Michael's sort of 
in-season writing and I really would recommend catching up on what he's been doing this summer. Tom has a big piece coming out very, very shortly. Theathletic.com forward slash tactics is how you can sign up for an annual subscription uh, with a 33% discount, the current offer. Tom, that piece that will come out soon, I'm not going to say exactly when, but soon is something you've been working on for a while and it expands on something that we have spoken about a few times in passing and that is the metric XT or expected threat. Yeah, so um, I was kind of given a bit of runway ahead of the new season to, to kind of tick off a big ticket idea and I've always wanted to kind of look into building and using a, an expected threat model. Now the model kind of is a natural extension of how you think about measuring the game measuring football obviously we have xg for chances but we don't really have a good metric to look at ball progression and how teams get the ball into dangerous areas consistently so i've kind of done a big explainer i've built a model i've used it to get some outputs and i think there's some pretty fun and interesting conclusions in there um and it's a you know it's a kind of metric that you don't really get a lot of or access to or can read about that much the public sphere really so hopefully something we can use again and again this season and, and talk about on this podcast too big time one ticket big ticket piece straight to warville um keep your eyes locked on the athletic site guys for that to go up over the next few days i'm sure we will discuss that in more length uh, in the coming weeks. We cannot wait for the season to start. As mentioned, more of us this season on the Athletics Football Tactics podcast. Uh, we've got a Premier League preview coming out next week. Uh, but also, in looking to give you more content and more good content and more of the content that you would like to listen to, I would massively welcome any suggestions any requests that you have for this season it can be a small topic that we could put into a mailbag style podcast or it could be a larger topic that i could set the guys to work on in terms of researching and, and releasing a big big piece of work so do get in touch on twitter you can find us all on there uh, and don't hesitate to tweet us with some ideas or, or any questions that you might have that can help us make this podcast better for the new season so join us throughout please make sure you're subscribed to this podcast feed and also to The Athletic so that you can read all of the great stuff on there. And do make sure you join us again next week. Exciting times on The Athletic's Football Tactics podcast. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.